everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. I'm your host, Grace Stiles, and I'm the marketing manager here at Team Builder. I know you're normally used to hearing Hewitt's voice, but I'll be filling in for today's episode. This episode, we get to talk to our friend Dan Howes, who is a high-performance coach for Collaborate Sports. We dive into transitioning from working with one sport to another, as well as how energy system development comes into play. So without further ado, here is today's episode. Welcome to today's podcast. Today we've got Dan Howells, who is currently a high-performance coach for Collaborate Sports. So why don't you go ahead and just start by introducing yourself and giving us some background. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so as you say, I'm Dan, and and my background is is mostly in strength conditioning over the last almost 20 years, which is shocking to hear me say it. Um, but it's been a long time, a lot of lessons learned across a number of different sports. Um, started off in uh, just a university setting as a, a sports science consultant and then gravitated towards the Institute of Sport as a multi-sport S&C coach and then started to specialise a bit in rugby and rugby sevens and was lucky enough to go to the inaugural sevens Olympics in Rio and then after that uh, transitioned into baseball and, and made my journey to the States, which is where I first experienced Team Builder, actually, uh, in that environment. And yeah, I've loved what you guys have done since. And uh, then on returning to the UK, just, just pivoted slightly from performance outcomes for athletes and actually moving towards more performance outcomes for coaches, um, coaching coaches, basically. And so that's what the, the focus of Collaborate Sports is, is to provide effective solutions and performance outcomes for the practitioners as opposed to the athletes. Um, yeah, so that's my journey today. Great. And obviously, transitioning from one sport to another can be challenging, especially if the sport is fairly different, like rugby and MLB. They're fairly different yeah. sports. What were some struggles that you had going through those transitions? Yeah, I think the first struggle is probably with yourself, right? It, do I do do I do this? Do I want to do this? Am I capable? That that imposter syndrome that I think is natural for us to experience as practitioners. If if we tr- you know truly care about making an impact, that's probably the only reason we feel those things. Um, so that, those were sort of the initial struggles. Um, the sort of secondary struggles, aside from the career itself, were relocating. You know, not just sport one sport to another, but country to country. Because what comes with that is not not just sport differences but i guess academic slight differences or journeys into that profession um you just look at nsca and uksca there's two different uh, governing or accreditative bodies for the profession so slight slight challenges there to be prepared for um but the sport itself actually i, I embraced the challenge as opposed to having fears um by the point of being offered a role I knew that the employer was the right employer for me and that therefore I was going to be the right person for them to solve their problem. Um, that if they wanted somebody with a baseball knowledge to solve baseball-specific problems, then I would have probably failed quite quickly. Um, but you know, on through a, a very, very thorough interview process, it was clear that the, this group really, really valued performance holistically uh, and problem-solving was one of their big focus points um so 
I guess that gives me a lesson to share with people, which is that to not be something you're not. You know, one of the conscious things I did was prepare for interview and prepare to try and get that type of role by not studying the sport in a in a rule-based manner or a facts-based manner or a historical manner. It was to just look at the sport for what it was in human movement and and sporting task. And that really, I think, helped me because it gave me a really unbiased, unemotional perspective on performance and look at looked at solutions in different ways um so i'd say that's a really big bit of advice i'd give to coaches is that actually pigeonholing yourself into a, a sport itself it, it, it's 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 going to limit you if you can step back and challenge yourself in other sports i think that can only grow the practitioner um immensely to be honest as long as they realize that they're just looking at the body as different sporting tasks, different energetics, different force demands. Um, that's the biggest bit of advice, I think, from that learning curve. Yeah, and a lot of times with internships or just being a GA or something like that, that coach generally doesn't have the option to pick what sport they want to work with. So it's definitely good to be mm-hmm. ready to go for whatever sport they're dealing with. Absolutely. And I've got, I've got a couple of... Um, mentees actually and it, i guess it comes back to you as an individual what gaps you have in your skill set and that this was this was an established individual who was working in the trade and um but had come from european type development and was was situated in in canada and you know identified that there was a big gap in his knowledge around the collegiate system not necessarily sports but the collegiate system the way it developed its athletes and also across different sports how they were developed at that level and so he took a sideways step to take a step forward um, and fill that gap in his career. And he, he he took on an internship at Louisville and flourished because he just saw different sports in, that he hadn't experienced and could look at them differently um, from those that were in it. And, and that's brilliant. Performance solutions and problem solving is all about perspective. And that's why we need each other. <laughs> so, yeah, that's really cool. So do you have any steps or any systems for potentially identifying those gaps, especially when it comes to actually like analyzing the energy systems within that sport? Yeah, I, I think if we, yeah, if we pigeon or fa- narrow our focus and use energy system as a component of development, physical development for athletes, I think it's important to to step away and observe the sport to start with. We could go straight into the, the literature and look at the work to rest ratios. And that's, I think that's a bad place to start because it's it's a migration to the mean. It's an average representation. Um, whereas you need to understand the range of demands in, in my experiences. Um, so when you look at the sport, let's take baseball, for example, where people would say there's probably little to no energy system demand. And if we looked at the uh, needs analysis of the sport, we would only see sprint activity and we'd see it very infrequently. And we'd see it for small volumes across sport that lasts three to four hours, okay, and repeated day competition. And um, well, if we look at the direct influences, so I like to look at sport and go, okay, first step, what are the direct influences from an energy system point of view? Well, there isn't in terms of sustaining effort, it's really only the anaerobic or glycolytic or even maybe just even the, the creatine phosphate you know from a sprint perspective that two to three second energy system demand or requirement uh, from sprint activity hitting and pitching however 
there's a certain position on the field as, as a pitcher. When you look at the working to rest ratios, has a very different need to a hitter, which is pitching now, I think every 20 seconds or 25 seconds on the pitch clock that was trialed. The demand has gone up. Well, that's that's repeat, that's the equivalent of repeat sprint of three to five, three to three, four second sprints a hundred times with 20 seconds off. Um, that's huge. That's a big, big load. Energy systems are one hand at the at the um ability to produce energy quickly is going to support the task itself in the moment. However, the recovery of the CP system and the buffering of waste and the ability to recover is going to be highly influenced by the aerobic system. And so training at ends of the energy system that look nothing like the sport is going to have benefits directly to performance outcomes because an individual who can pitch 100 miles an hour for 60 pitches of 100 is going to outperform somebody who can only do it for 20. So that's the first thing. The next thing then is to look at the sport from an indirect influence perspective. And so where does energy system development benefit the athlete in bigger ways than just the start of a game to the end of a game or the start of competition to the end? We know that it helps enable recovery, okay? Our ability to sleep, our ability to suppress stress hormones. Um, you know, oxygen is, is a great friend to the body in, in terms of healing and recovery. Well, the moment you finish exercise, if you have a high aerobic system, that's only going to benefit you uh, in your recovery. And if we've got a sport like baseball that has to do things every day and has compromised sleep routines, um, there's an indirect benefit to that. Um, but those things are not necessarily research. You have to draw on the research from other areas and go, right, Am I? is this going to be a really good performance solution to some problems that we're trying to solve? So those would be my first things are to sort of not go down the work to rest element go and look at the sport from the perspective that you see it and the actions and, and how the, the energy systems can influence that yeah so then once we've taken those initial steps then how would you how would research come into play at that point yeah and then it then it comes down to like getting into the detail so we know where the opportunities for impact are i like to talk about around impact opportunities when we're looking at performance solutions so we've identified that there's a di direct influence from doing certain energy system work and we've identified that there may be even indirect as well and we could take that into to rugby sevens we know that there's a, a direct influence of doing repeat sprint work at high intensity in the 14 15 days out from competition to buffer waste away quickly but also increase our tolerance and reduce our perception of effort so that's that's really direct um and then we've got the aerobic side of things to enable the recovery between those efforts um, and also the recovery with tour and long-haul travel. Well, the next thing now is to go up to elicit those changes truly. What do I need? And that's where the underpinning physiology, that's where all of our academic underpinning learning becomes really pivotal. Um, so understanding the physiological responses to intensity and volume. And we're rightly so very well-versed in adaptations on a strength power continuum or perspective from an intensity and volume manner those things are the drivers of adaptation for strength and power how much we lift and how high that load is relative to our max and how much of it we do and how fast we express it it's the same for energy systems you have to understand the drivers of the adaptation 
patient, which for me, I simplify again and just come back to what is the specific intensity you need and for how long. And if you don't understand those drivers and the impact it has on physiology, then you're likely going to use drills a lot more than you would use really specific prescriptions. Um, your work is probably not scalable across sports because if you use a drill for rugby because it looks like rugby, it's, it's going to do different things for different people. And there's a great paper that was put out around the variance in response to certain things. So like small-sided games versus circuit work versus intervals, specific work to rest. And the high variation that happens in technical, tactical training, where we do spend a lot of time as coaches, is potentially a little bit of a cop-out saying, I'll let the sport take care of this because it looks like the sport. Well, actually, that's just migrating to the mean again, which is you're not going to improve your capacities. You're just going to work out them. Whereas interval training was working a lot higher um, with small variance in uh, the responses of the heart rate, meaning we know what we can get from that type of training. Um, and so, yeah, it's really important to know that. And there's some some foundational papers that I've looked at that, that help me understand what's the differences in adaptive response to low intensity, long duration and high intensity, short duration work. And if you can understand those two polarizing end of the spectrum, then you can probably let the sport take care of the, what I call the mixed energy system needs in the middle, um, which we can't really control for. And there's no research on the mixed energy systems because there's no controls for it. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So like the one research study that you were referring to, how do you take information from that and use it practically within your team that you're working with? Yeah. Um, well, those papers are like, we know that, that uh, Mike Bashai and, and Paul Larson are, are pretty influential in modern day energy system uh, development. And they, they publish a lot on the high intensity interval training concept. And that's nothing necessarily uh, new in that because they're just putting a really good concept together with regards to the physiology. We look at, marathon runners they spend a lot of time training uh, below their race pace and they spend a very specific amount of time super maximal to that and um, that's because they can do more of the long duration low intensity stuff um so for me i'm looking at the the principles in their papers the programming puzzle research papers which are, are fantastic i reread these every year and, and this is why we stemmed into this this podcast because that was something i've recently released and and promoted but those papers talk around understanding specific intensities, specific word to rest ratios, specific heart rates or intensity measures to elicit those adaptations. And you have to understand those. So for me, uh, to simplify this for the practitioners I work with, we have a false velocity curve. Like I see there's an energy system continuum or curve as well. You know, if we're working for long duration, aerobic capacity work where we're just trying to create very what we call central adaptations at the heart we have to have a steady heart rate at a low rate for long durations of time because we need to allow certain mechanisms to occur like a, a pre-stretch in the ventricular wall that's a driver of the adaptation to create a thicker heart and a, a, a bigger stroke volume per beat well we can't do that at high intensities a heartbeat's too fast to get the ventricular fillings we, we need. So it's very clear at that end of the energy system equivalent of the fourth velocity curve is that I need to work at this duration for this intensity. And then we get into more aerobic power intervals, as I would call them, or long duration intervals, as as uh, Bashar and Larson would talk around. It might be one, three, four minutes in duration, 
well, that has a work to rest ratio. The steady state stuff doesn't. It's just continuous. And we'll look here at a two to one, generally, is my, my prescription. And then we start to get into understanding like super maximal intensities, way above the velocity at VO2 max, where we get into anaerobic work. And it's not to necessarily be better anaerobically, it's because we know that we can have a big bang for buck for doing a tremendous uh, amount of intensity, high intensity for short duration, because we spend a lot of time at high heart rates and a high percentage of, of VO2. And that creates more peripheral adaptations, more capillarization, some enzyme activity change, but but more the, the, the powerhouse, the mitochondria get adapted in different ways. So we're starting to shift along this continuum with very specific adaptations. And then we get to something that might be repeat sprint training, you know, high intensity, we're five seconds on, 15, 20 seconds off. That's going to have, again, different adaptations, very enzymatic, very buffering in nature. Um, and very likely can very top very much driving the tolerance of it through the athlete's uh, perception as well and as we move through this continuum there's a saturation effect of like dose work here or frequency we can't do as much of it and so this relationship is, is quite systematic when you deconstruct it into a framework or a continuum and then we get up to the end of speed which is still an, a, a part of energy system training it's just pure phosphocreatine type work atp pc two to three seconds of work and so that needs a work to rest of, of one to probably 10 for full um or close to full resynthesis of, of phosphocreatine so you can start to see that you're doing things for very different reasons um now then it's practically understanding where does that fit in your overall plan and you have to work back from the sport one year i had 16 weeks pre-season in rugby sevens which is huge in a rugby 15s i had five weeks before we were hitting games and in football you have three weeks so then it's about how does this model fit um and that for me is about residual gains a la Isherin's work you know we know if we can get certain levels of aerobic work and certain levels of strength work they hold but they take a long time to build and i do think we bypass some of these things in athletic development like We'll not do some of the aerobic work. We'll just get straight into small-sided games because we've only got three weeks. And for me, that's not um, expanding the, op the, the the capabilities or the, yeah, the capacities of sorry of the, the individual. Uh, it's only just stressing the ability or the capability to sustain that, what they've got. Um, much like we build a foundation of strength to express more force in a short time, that's really important for energy system development from the aerobic base as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. But I think if you've got that framework, it's kind of a, a set of pieces to a puzzle. That puzzle looks different for each sport, and you've just got to pick the right pieces at the right time, or really the, for the, the right duration based on that sport. Um, yeah, I hope that brings that to life. Yeah, so with when it comes to sports that are in season, obviously the primary goal is to play and to actually mm -hmm you know, get better within your sport and within your team. But do you have any yeah. advice of working with the sport coach to, for them to understand the importance of conditioning as well in season? Yeah, 100%. And that's, I mean, there's a different skill altogether there, which is collaboration, communication, soft skills, um, simplifying this work for the coach, uh, understanding that or making, not making them, but discussing if this is an impact opportunity or not. And again, I come back to talk about coaches that I work with and mentor. 
like my biggest question at the start of the journey with them is like what does success look like for your environment and we tend to plan with fitter faster stronger in mind first not the the real world applied things that we're doing day to day and that might be player availability might be the the biggest thing that's going to have the impact opportunity because we can't be all things at all times for all people you know that's why we can't give people one stimulus and they all get fit faster, stronger at the same rate. So starts with conversations with the coach and knowing explicitly like what does success look like for your environment. Um, if there's a big game uh, strategy that's based on outrunning opponents in team sports, well, clearly there's an obvious link there. But if it's about something else if it's about power play well there's an indirect benefit there that might need more education um then you've got to look at the overall schematic or the the, the sort of uh, micro cycle what you're doing and does it give you enough is there some excessively high training bouts that give you enough of that that dose that high heart rate with no variance and you you can guarantee that that gives you what you need brilliant but that's unlikely because technical tactical priorities will mean variance yeah, that's coaching. So then you've just got to take a step back and say, well, where can we create this opportunity? And you know, an example when I worked in a rugby club was the problems that we were trying to solve were high incidence of soft tissue injuries and a need from the coach to want to play an expansive game, so running a lot. Well, once we had that clarity, we could go down the route of developing a specific system pre-season and in-season to allow that to happen. Um, and that looked very different to if a coach has told me in the past, we want to play a physical game, a tight power physical game. Um, so you need to know these things. And then once you know these things, you can start to, again, piece things together. And for me, it's about what you need as a minimum dose to prevent deconditioning. That's the absolute minimum you need to try and achieve. The ideal is if we need to improve things to improve our outcomes then we have to find time in our schedules to prioritize that um and that might mean replacing some resistance work for example um but one of the big concepts that's in team sports is, is this microdosing concept around speed and if we take that in baseball um our positional players were shocked when i told them that we were going to do conditioning because they play every day but we did it in a really minimalistic way and we coupled it with, with some methods that were running based in terms of like running technique. Um, and we made it really short duration and we, and we attributed it to a very specific type of day. It was a day that was, um, you know, after days off and before days off, it was, um, part of a day that had lower training from the baseball side of things. So we created adjustments and we worked together in that environment. And it was min- what I would call a minimal effective dose for, for those groups. And we would work six to eight minutes of conditioning. That would be it once every 10 days. Um, whereas in rugby sevens, we needed to f- sit a lot higher volume, a lot more frequently. So you just have to problem solve with the coaches, but it all stems from knowing why you're doing what you want to do as opposed to guessing. So within your mentorship program or just other interactions that you had with coaches that you've worked with, what areas do you think they struggle when it comes to developing a program for a specific sport? Yeah, I mean, it, it does 
link in into this concept. Uh, one of the biggest bits of feedback I get is is around this area of energy system development. I think that <clears throat> it's not it's not enjoyable to do, <laughs> and it's not enjoyable necessarily to coach because the the sort of I guess the reward for coaches is not that instant whereas like in speed work it's exciting it's fast it's you know it challenges you your coaching eye it's very much a, 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 a an area that allows a coach to have rapport with athletes and i do think we've gone down this rabbit hole a little bit of like they'll let t- t- the sport take care of itself and as a result people aren't well versed in this area so when the mentorship i do when we take it back to simplicity and we look at physiology and they everybody has done this work or or researched it or learned it it's just been deprioritized in their skill set um because of probably just following suit to be honest so we do revisit the physiology and we look at you know creating basic principles and it simplifies it and it makes people realize that it's not about um methods where they see certain drills done or tempos or MAS. Like people confuse MAS, maximum aerobic speed, as a method when it is not. It's an it's a measure. It's a measure of intensity. You use that to our advantage and use it in the right way. And that really does simplify things for coaches. So that's definitely one area. Um another area is is around like data. We've got this rightly, this obsession with collecting information because we don't collect information, we don't gain objective understanding of evaluating our our effectiveness as coaches or performance teams um but it's what information to use and why and again everything has to relate to a really specific performance solution again and not just collecting let's say you know team builder volume load information because i've got an opportunity to collect it if you're not using it it's not informing anything and so that's another thing that's mis- probably misguided. Energy systems tends to be avoided and misunderstood. Data tends to be understood and misguided. Um, and so it's making sure you're using things for the right reasons. And then the, the other biggest one is is what I'm using far too much of, which is my mouth, like talking and communicating, and that soft skill element. Um, even just recently, uh, the last two days, talked to two two guys online for a little bit of free advice around this around something. And it was SNC related. It was one about job placements and trying to have the skills for it. And another one about job opportunities that just weren't a networking that just wasn't coming their way. And both individuals, when we deconstructed it, it was about some of their delivery of their messages. You know, like one person was talking about all the things that they can do. And I was like, well, that is diluting your quality as an SNC coach because you're showing that you're you're a mixed bag. Whereas actually these placements are really specific to SNC. So make your communication specific to that. And another individual was talking about um, like being strong to his core and his values, which is great at the right time. But being like that all the time is a little bit of an overplay and can actually shut down communications and networking opportunities, et cetera. Um, and so those are, that's a huge one. And, and, and I'll say globally that just the concept of having like group mentorship, as you guys are so kindly sponsored, uh, sponsored coaches for, is getting people in a room discussing and sharing their ideas and reflectively looking at what they've done why they've done it and where it's been right and where it could be wrong it's so powerful because we tend to try and make it in this industry alone um 
so yeah, the power of talking and the power of peer-to-peer support is is or having a mentor is is something I'm going to stand by for a long time now, just because I've seen the value in it. But those would be my three key areas. I think people tend to underestimate. And you mentioned earlier about when potentially running a session or something for baseball players mm-hmm. and they were just surprised with what they were doing or what you had them doing. Yeah. Is there an element where you try and explain the purpose of it? And it probably just depends on the athletes that you're working with, but how far into depth would you go? And do you find that as an, an important step in the process? Yeah. I mean, great question because that's just articulating the need to bring to life what we know. So two people can know the exact same explicit information, physiology, and the reason for doing things and deliver it in very different ways. And, and I witnessed that, you know, that, that happens. So there is a need to deliver these messages. Firstly, just on the human level, it's important for people to know why they're doing what they're doing. Um, inheriting a whistle as a coach and using it without wanting to explain things is a, is a bad move, in my opinion. Um, so taking the time to explain to your athletes a simple model of what, what why, and how. Like, what are we going to do today? Or what does this program involve? Why does it look like this? How do I relate it to you and what you do as an athlete? If I relate it to my why, they won't care. If I relate it to their why, they can get on board with that. And so we used to do this for uh, in baseball. We would say, look, we're going to be doing some conditioning here because we can show you, you your group as athletes, that uh, pitching, for example, those who have greater aerobic scores in our environment have less um, variance in their pitching. They can control the ball better. Well, suddenly that is prick up and they go, well, that's important to me. So if that's that's important to me and this links and this can help me, then I'm going to buy into that a little bit more. So that's the what and the why. And then the how is the detail because no one likes to not know how long or for um, how many reps, etc. cetera. Um, so that's on the sort of like, you know, at least that level, keep people informed all the time. And then the next level is if you want to go a step deeper, great coaches know how to deliver that information. Is it a factual way and a sciencey way? Or is it an emotional way and simplified into analogies and relatable things for that athlete? Um, others will inquire and challenge the athlete to give them the answer because then they're going to buy an even greater if they understand it. So there's a huge skill set to this. It's just not something that's taught, you know, um, because it takes a long time to master and it takes a lot of awareness too, which which is tough in the day-to-day act of working in performance sport where you're like, right, next thing, next thing, next thing. Great. Yeah, that's all really good stuff. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts on this topic before we close out? Um, I would just say that circle back on what you're doing, irrespective of whether it's energy system development, whether it's strength or power, um, you know, whether it's you know, data collection, whatever it is, continue to circle back. And again, I'm going to plug mentorship just because you know, even just today, a really established coach did some work with him and and he just needed to be, as we call, check and challenged. And my ability to discuss and get ask questions of him and make him think slightly differently helped him come to greater resolutions of the original problem he was trying to solve with greater opportunity for greater impact. Um, and so 
whether that's circling back in one sense with yourself, that's what I'd call reflective practice, going through the, you know, trying to make sense of what happened for both good, bad, and, and updating your process principles and what you do, or whether that's in discussion and being guided and, um, uh, you know, mentored to solutions. It doesn't matter. You can pick and choose, but there's many people that just avoid it. And that's the danger. We will always continue to do what we do until we challenge ourselves to improve and upgrade. So evolve and, and keep revisiting and checking yourself um, with others or, or with yourself. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to today's episode. As a strength and conditioning software company, we find it really important to continue to be a resource for coaches. So stay tuned for our next podcast.